0: Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and you're listening to the Focus Compounding Podcast. This is the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to FocusCompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code podcast, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at FocusCompounding.com. Or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. And now here's Andrew with your regularly scheduled podcast.
1: Alrighty, we are ready to get started here today. How is everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with the Focus Compounding Podcast. At this point in time, I would usually say Mr. Jeff Gannon. Now he spells his name G-E-O-F-F, Gannon. That's my partner. How are you doing today? But today, we actually have a special guest, and his name is Jeff Johnson, and that's spelled J-E-F-F, Johnson. So, Jeff, how are you doing here today? I'm doing well, Andrew. Thank you. Glad you could make it over
2: to Cowtown today in that's, downtown Fort Worth. That's
1: where we're at. We're in, we're in downtown Fort Worth. It's probably about a 40-minute drive from, from Dallas area, but I love uh, I love coming down here. Jeff is a former public company CEO and the former you also um, were something with the American Stock Exchange correct and the Australian Stock Exchange or something about that
2: we started out as a bulletin board company um, and then within about a year that was no an four Then I remember it was May 5th 2005 we got to ring the bell on the American Stock Exchange that
1: is incredible that and is then uh,
2: when the New York bought the American or they merged um, then we moved over to the New York and Did that for a while, and yeah,
1: had a lot of fun. That is pretty incredible. So today, and typically when we bring individuals on the podcast, I always talk about I have this fascination with stories and how the narrative has always been written for people, Everyone's story is always changing. You could be doing one thing today and then you meet somebody completely new and it puts you on this completely new path. And, you know, everyone's story is always changing. And I guess I want to take a little bit step back because I've talked about this a lot. But my fascination with stories came a long time ago when I read this book called The Fountainhead. And my main takeaway from it was that humans sort of have like this heroic Like ability to sort of pave their own way in life if they so choose. It's sort of like the Confucius mindset of like he who says he can and he who says he can't are both usually right. So today we're going to be talking about your story and maybe a little bit of a background on you. We have a lot to talk about and I think a lot of people get a lot out of this with your experience running a public company. And obviously you have, um, you know, a great story to talk about. So maybe you could just kind of go back to. 20 years old i'm currently 22 and i think the average listeners on my podcast are probably 20 to 35 to 40 once again i'm the old man (laughs) you're the old
2: man i used to be the young guy for years and years and overnight i became one of the older guys crazy that's 53 so yeah 53
1: so maybe you could go back to your early 20s sort of your background and sort of just tell us about your story sure uh so
2: my early 20s i thought i was going to go play in the NFL. You know, that was my dream. Yeah. I grew up in Lubbock, Texas. Uh loved football. Uh got hurt. Went to three colleges over 4 years and almost got out of my freshman year, almost. So we figured it was time for I got a letter from the chancellor at Texas Tech that invited me to get out and to do other things and, and so I did. Yeah. <laughs> and I was uh believe it or not at that time I was selling pots and pans door to door. Really? And uh, got started doing that. uh, Did pretty well at it. And I was out of town. I think I was in College Station. I forget where. 1987, the movie Wall Street comes out, the original Wall Street. And I watched what they're doing, and I said, Man, that's a lot easier sales pitch than knocking on 100 doors a day and having to sell $1,000 worth of pots and pans in an hour. I'm going to try that. So... I went and took my seven, uh, passed it, and got on with a, a small firm and went up to New York to train for about six or for about a month and came back, and within six months, that really wasn't what I wanted to do. I always wanted to get into the oil business. I grew up around it, didn't know anybody in it, but it's just kind of gets in your blood, just like probably Wall Street does for guys living on
1: the East Coast, just being around it. So were you cold calling i'm guessing back in those days and sort of like a boiler room type of setup or what was that like yeah so there was a firm in dallas called
2: touchstone capital may have heard of and they were raising money for a company called chesapeake energy a little company called chesapeake energy it's a there's a little brand new company (laughs) that aubrey mcclendon and tom ward founded and so they needed to raise capital um i interviewed with them i said man i can do that so after about a year of raising capital, I moved up the chain, got to where I was structuring deals and really was doing more of the business side and, and capital structure, raising money. So we did that from 88 to 93. Uh, they went public in 93, Chesapeake. So I took a handful of our investors and decided to start my own oil and gas company. So we did. Uh, we started working with uh, some people in Louisiana first couple of million dollars we lost and so i said huh let's move over to texas i know some guys over here and i got into operations and so that's how i learned the business um and that that's something a mentor has taught me is surround yourself with really smart people people you aspire to be and if you're not where you want to be maybe it's time to upgrade your friends sure yeah. and i and i took that to heart and uh, still friends with uh Long time with a lot of them, but the people that I was surrounding myself with, it was more. We were young to, to your point now, I'm 20, late 20s. Uh huh. And you're making good money, you're having fun, yeah, and everything that goes with that. Living like a rock star, living like a rock star. And so I decided then it was time to get serious. And because I could see an opportunity, I felt like I understood the business pretty well. And we ran off some success from 94 to 98. I think we ran off about 33 natural gas wells in a row that 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 worked. You uh-huh. know, no dry holes within that that run, and it was right out here west of Fort Worth, and a fellow by the name of Bob Simpson uh, gave us an unsolicited offer. Uh, Bob, you know, used to run XTO before he was CEO. Whenever they sold to Exxon, so he was buying everything inside out there, and we sold to him in '98. So we kept a little bit of production, uh, but prices crashed. And so I would like to say we were smart enough to see it coming. We just needed the money. Yeah. you know, And everything we had done was friends and family. Did not have access to uh, large dollars, didn't know those people. And we actually, if we can back up, when prices crashed, we actually got two revenue runs of $7.75 a barrel. That's what we got.
1: Wow. That's crazy. It was bad. It yeah. was
2: costing us twelve dollars when we were getting seven seventy five. So you don't make that up in volume. Yeah, sure. So we, I kind of at that point in time, uh, where we going to go? Focus on Nat gas, oil. Uh, where do we think the markets are going? And we thought it was a good entry point. Right, buy low, sell high. Mm-hmm. The oil prices at ten fifteen dollars. Time to get in. So I said I'm going to go to Wall Street, meet some guys. Uh, get some introductions, and go kill it. Well, I went up there, and I took two meetings. And both meetings were at about $15 a barrel. This was in 2000, I believe, maybe 99, 2000. And I had two analysts, about about your age, a little bit older, 25. They looked at me, and one of them said, what makes you think oil prices will ever get back to 25, much less 50? Because I was making a long bet on 50. Sure. I got sucked into the Boone Pickens camp that we're about to run out of cheap oil. Well, when you're the only guy doing that, it's—I uh, won't say the only guy—but that's a response I got. The second response I got, and this is whenever I decided to pack my bags and go back home, they said, "We don't want to buy into oil right now. It's too
1: cheap." I said, "Huh? It's amazing how that works out, huh?
2: It's crazy. Yeah. When 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 oil is hundred and twenty dollars, <throat> excuse me, you can raise money falling out of bed. Yeah. Without much of a deal." You know, you get down like this last time at 25 and
1: 30, nobody wants to put their money in it. It It is so crazy. Counterintuitive, right? It, it is. It's kind of just, I mean, even relating to the stock market, people want to buy Apple at, you know, $100 instead of at, you know, 70 or whatever. You know, it's, That's it's, right. it's kind of, it's human nature, I guess you could say. That's funny, and it'll never change too, which is good for guys like us. Absolutely, and so we um, kind of, we did one deal, I think, for about three
2: years it was down, and finally in 03, uh, I met a group, a uh, financial group, basically out of Canada and Europe, that said, we we believe it. We're in. And I said, okay. Um, I said, I would like to do this through a public vehicle. They said, that's exactly what we want because that's what we like. So I got a chance to uh, – we started with three barrels a day of production, uh, two guys and a dog in the office. Nice. A <laughs> hope and a dream. And I was off to uh, Geneva to raise capital. And we didn't have enough money for payroll two weeks later. So we got over there. And this is, I don't know how many time you have for stories, but I got over there. Never being over there, I didn't realize most people speak French and German. So (laughs) I didn't know exactly. All I had was the name of a hotel on a napkin. Oh, gosh. That's it. And I'm supposed to meet all the guys over there. So nobody can understand me. I get on the phone. I can't even make a phone call because they're speaking French. Yeah. Nobody's standing out there with a sign, Mr. Johnson. So I said, You know, I'm here. I got a name of a hotel. I'm just going to enjoy it for a day or two and see what happens. Yeah, sure. So I go get in a cab. Cabby's speaking French. I give him this napkin. He gives me the thumbs up, and we're off and going where I don't know. <laughs>
1: this guy from Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> yeah. it's so out of his element. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And, you know, when you're
2: from Texas, anytime you're speaking, Around foreign language, or at least I do. Yeah, you always get this Mexican accent, right? Sure. Like you're speaking Spanish. Yeah. And anyway, that was that's another story. So we show up at this hotel, right, right in downtown Geneva, and I walk in. This lady at the hotel could speak English, so that was a that was a win. So we're heading the right direction. Found someone could speak English. And I said, room for Jeff Johnson. They said we don't have a reservation, and they're sold out. There's a big convention there. Oh gosh. I said, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> I turn around, and Christos standing over there says, Jeff, Jeff. I can't sound. He's Greek. I can't sound like yeah. Christos. I turn around. He says, come here. He said, we've been waiting on you. We've got meetings lined up. Okay, things are looking yeah. good. <laughs> we're there two days. Uh, raised $6 million. Came back, and then that was no 04. Then over the next four years, we were right on prices. So – Something that I've, that there's a lot of things a lot of rich guys do that have in common. You work hard, you take risk, you know, their, their, their faith, their family, their friends are very important to them. If you take care of those three, finances tend to take care of themselves. So when we got back, uh, prices were at 30, going to 50. We didn't know they were going to go to 148, but we, we rode the ride. Wow. And then uh, they crashed from 148 back down to $32, you know, from 08 to 09. And we had about $100 million outstanding with the Union Bank and some other Wall Street guys. We survived the downturn. And in December 10, I, I decided to leave the company. Mm-hmm. I'm a build to sell guy. Yeah. Um, you know, we, we got through it. And so, and I needed to spend some more time with my family. And that's something else I'll tell you. Tell your kids you love them every day. You don't have any yet. Spend time with the family. That's awesome. Spend time with your family and find a, a group of guys that you can trust that can mentor you and guys your age that you can work with. And stay close to them.
1: Yeah, and we we talk about that a lot. How I mean, obviously, our business and everyone listening. Quite honestly, it, it's so dollars and cents. It's yeah. always about money, and unfortunately, but obviously, there's way more important things than than all of that. Absolutely, because you. I've learned if you and you know, wealth is
2: at different levels for different people. Sure, but if that's what you're working for, and that's it, it, it it's never gonna you, there'll never be enough.
1: And and that was that was cano not to cut you off that right. was that was Cono, correct? Control, which CFW, which yes. you said had a um, a 600 million dollar enterprise value peak enterprise value what well, we did so yeah. we, we had
2: a nice run and we got aggressive on buying assets uh, grew from two guys and a dog to about 175 employees we're operating in New Mexico Texas and Oklahoma and why did you choose to go with the public vehicle I, I needed the capital okay I needed yeah. the capital mm-hmm. and I didn't my friends and family were not wealthy. Yeah, you know they they had some money, but you were to, and that's why we sold in '98. Mm-hmm. I mean, we should have been. Well, we got a good enough price. We probably would have sold anyway. But had we had people of means with us, then we would have jumped out and been buying assets in '09 at ten bucks mm-hmm. instead of thirty bucks in '03.
1: It's so interesting to me because you started out before that business. You you specialized in it, so you. You know, when you're specializing in that, and then you decide to become an entrepreneur in start Kano, and then all of a sudden you're running an organization. I mean, what was that experience where, like, you know, it's a lot more than just two guys and a dog. Now you're managing people, and people are, have mortgages, and they're depending on you, and their kids are depending on you, and you're managing over 100 people. You know, my, one of my goals uh, early on getting back to finance, I wanted to
2: run a billion-dollar company. I said, let's turn this into a billion-dollar company. Didn't quite get there, but we got close. But along the process, and a lot of guys your age won't remember this, but there was not Sarbanes-Oxley or what you call Sox. Mm-hmm. All this came about while we were public, a lot of changes in rules and regs. And so during that process, you know, they made it a, uh, I think it's a crime, actually, uh, where CEOs sign off on bad financials.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I'm going, oh, my gosh. You know, I said, how does a CEO at any company know every – number on the financial statements to be true at a big company or small company so i had to go start taking some accounting classes at night yeah i called some smart people i knew i said look i got to learn this stuff yeah you know if i'm signing off on it so it was a great process to make myself go through that out of necessity because i sure as heck you don't sit around and say you know what i'm just going to go take some accounting classes yeah you you just don't do that sure so learned quite a bit about accounting and finance through it. Met a lot of good guys on Wall Street. Um, learned about the processes and how it worked. And, and, you know, overall, it was a great experience. I got to sit on the listed company council on the American Stock Exchange and New York Stock Exchange and help, you know, come up with ideas and, you know, uh, just meet a lot of good people. Great a, lot, a lot of other
1: CEOs and hear hear what they had to say and learn a lot. What was your experience like? Because again, I'm coming at it, and a lot of people listening are coming at it from, I guess, more of a analyst type position. Mm-hmm. So you have somebody like you who took this from, you know, four was it three or four barrels to two thousand plus or whatever it was. So right. this is your baby, your right. your lifeblood, and then you have some analysts on the other end of the, you know, side of things who are expecting. Next quarter earnings, and a- as if like they know your whole business, and you're not there 24 hours a day grinding it out, you know. So, what was that yeah. experience like dealing with, I guess, that side of, you know, running a public company? Because no. that's got to be tough. That
2: right? was an eye opener too. I was very fortuitous to have a mentor who was my CFO named Sam Smith. Well, Sam, you know, had just gone through a merger a Anadarko about a seven billion dollar deal before, and after that, he went and started up another successful a public company here called Encore, who later sold for $7 billion. And And um, he was on our board as our audit committee chair. And I remember we had just got a loan from Nini Bank of California. Our first credit facility was $50 million, And we were buying a $55 million deal. And we were set to close on the loan the next day. And I get a call from my uh, lending guy. Uh, he says, all right, Jeff. I said, "Hey, what's going on?" Yeah. <laughs> he said, "Nothing." I I said, "Okay, we set to close tomorrow because we're 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 close on this fifty five million dollar deal. It puts us over the top, sure. And we, we're we're going to use thirty million of of debt, and we had the equity raised." He said, "Can you come over tomorrow?" Oh no, it was the day after. It was two days later. So this is two days before. I said, "Sure, we we're okay." He said, "Yeah, <laughs> just come on over. I want to buy you lunch." Oh gosh, he's in Dallas. Uh huh. So I drive over to Dallas. We sit down and. He looks at me and he says, you know what I'm going to say? I said, hopefully you say we're still good to close. He said, yes. I said, CFO. He said, yes. He said, we're going to close on this. We're happy with the way things are, but, you know, you really need to find somebody that can help you navigate those shark-infested waters known as Wall Street. Sure, <laughs> yeah. So I came back and I called Sam, and Sam was in retirement age. He was early, mid-60s. I said, Sam, how would you like to one more. Yeah. So we'll do, do it Hang one more time. Hang the shingle out one more time, yeah. He said, well, and he smiled. I think he knew that was coming. Yeah, he said, sure. He well, you're going to have to humor me. I said, I can humor you. <laughs> yeah. I said, well, we can get the board to prove this real quick. So Sam came on, and I learned as much from him. I, I, I was so blessed to have, Galilee, five, six guys, 20 years my senior, or in one case, 40 years my senior, Yeah, that would just take time. And I'd encourage you back to your – earlier question if ask somebody yeah if you're looking for a a mentor or input you gotta ask because they're not going to volunteer it they're busy but more times than not you're going to find successful people are willing and want to help the next generation that's coming up because you guys are going to
1: be taking care of us one day right Right? do you think it's because they remember what it was like to be 20 30 years old and just kind of starved for knowledge and just wanting to get after it absolutely when you sit here you know and i'll just use my kids
2: for example and it's this way with with young men that we work with yeah you when you've been in the ball game you, you can kind of see what the pitch is coming or at least you know there's there's going to be one of two or three pitches i sure. know that don't know which one but here's what you need to be looking for and you see guys at the plate that just get their knees buckled because they have no idea what's coming, and it's only because they just haven't had the experience. I mean, they're talented. Um, they're smart. I mean, my gosh, you guys now, it's amazing with all the technology and how you guys understand it and literally can get – I can get information now from an analyst or someone that in five minutes that would used to take us four or five days. Wow. You know, it's yeah. just – and information is powerful, and how quickly you get it is powerful. Uh, that's a, that's a market advantage, competitive advantage, I believe.
1: So I got off on a tangent where were we so, no, yeah, no, so that's great. So then you, so you left to go spend more time with your family. I did. So this was sort of a new era of your life. And then what did you do during that time when, where was the price of oil at that? Because we're going to get to what you're currently doing now, which I guess mm-hmm. this all sort of, um, ties into that. So where was oil at when? When you left Kano, yeah. So at the end of ten, it was
2: it's on its way back up. I'm going to say around seventy. Uh-huh. Uh, we can look and see seventy-eight. So on its way back up, I left and I said, "Okay, we'll we'll wait for the next correction." I'm going to go spend some time with my family. I I did not do from 04 to eleven. I was I, I worked a lot.
1: Uh huh. Sure. I was
2: on the road, but you know that was that's just what I did. Um, so eleven, it gets up to a hundred, goes over a hundred. I said, okay, we'll see a correction here in about a year and a half. 12, it's over 100. 13, it's over 100. 14, it's still over 100. And I said, man, did I miss this? <laughs> yeah. I said, I know we got more production. You know, we can talk macro if you want to. Sure. I said, but the numbers, it just doesn't add up. And you had the, uh, you know, all the new fracking that was coming on, horizontal, the Permian Basin uh, that was just really coming on, Bakken, Eagleford really to be honest with you it it performed a lot better a lot quicker than i thought um so then 15 it was over 100 then mid-15 it started coming down i said okay this is that and we watched it and in january of 16 got back down to 26 dollars. i said okay th- th- this is our entry point this is what we need to do so i called up a a friend of mine who's a, a in the building he's a pretty good sized builder here both commercial and residential and he's all and he had told me he said jeff i want to diversify into the oil business when you get ready to to do something call me and i've never really had a well anytime you have investors or partners Mm -hmm. but i'd never had anybody come in at the beginning with me before so that was a question i was prayerful about it and said you know this time i want to have somebody with me it'll help keep me you know uh uh it's it's just Having someone else to bounce stuff off sure. of instead of you having to be the guy yeah. every day, every time, totally. it, it just makes you, it's maybe more effective, and I didn't know if it would or not.
1: And he could come I, at it from a different perspective, I guess, as well, because he's a home builder. Absolutely. Correct? So even if he's not as specialized in oil, maybe there's some thoughts he could have and in, you know, well, inputs.
2: Well, yeah. Even though I'm in the water and oil infrastructure business, you still need to be able to, think you know anyway what are interest rates going to do sure. what are the markets going to do because all that affects the price of oil which affects the drilling rate which affects what i do mm-hmm. you know and that's water transportation and disposal so we got that uh, actually incorporated oh, april and may of 16 uh at-, at global energy that's correct this at- yep. global energy and so i got the well, you, I don't know if you know what a Rolodex is, but it's like today it's all <laughs> yeah, your computer in your sure. database. Got the Rolodex out. So I got the Rolodex out, reached out to some of my old Wall Street guys and guys yeah. that had brought me deals and said, listen, I want to get into water. I said, I particularly would like to look at Oklahoma, the stacked scoop. Mm-hmm. And that was an up and coming play. It was it was uh, early enough to where you could get in at a decent entry price, but I still believe we're like in the first inning of a twenty inning game. I've had I've heard people at public companies say they believe it could be the next Permian. Now that's a little aggressive, I think. Mm-hmm. The Permian's pretty special, but plenty of business and plenty of opportunity out there to to get in at the right time and and look to exit at the right time.
1: So why water? And I guess more specifically, what are you doing with this water? Because a lot of people listening, maybe they don't, you know, they they probably aren't so yeah. specialized in it. Yeah. Well, water. To, to drill wells, you got to have a number of things go right.
2: You got to have capital, good engineering, good geology, all of those things. But two things you have to have to be able to drill and frack is energy, horsepower. A lot of people don't realize some of the biggest cost of creating energy is energy, whether it's electricity, whether it's fuel, whether it's human, uh, human energy. And the other thing is water. You got to have water to drill down and you got to have water to frack. Then once you produce a well, when a well is successful and they bring it online and start producing, by definition, it is a water well. And for every barrel of oil that produces, you're going to produce several barrels of water. That's that's what drives it out of the ground. And as a oil driller or operator, you have to get rid of that water or you get shut down. Mm-hmm. And so we want to be able to transport water and dispose of water. And it's a good margin business. Uh, the one thing that it's not going to do, and I tell people what we're not as much as what we are, we're not out here drilling wildcats looking to hit home runs. And some people like doing that. Um, I did it one time in my life, but I believe that there's just as much, if not more money to be made, maybe not as fast as there is drilling wells without taking the risk. Everything we look at, I look at what's the worst thing that can happen. Mm -hmm. When I drill a well, the worst thing that can happen is I drill a dry hole. Well, that's not good. Yeah. And this, I believe, the worst thing that can happen is once you capture market share, which we're in the process of doing, then it's just the the, the drilling rate. Because once a well comes online and, and it's producing, generally speaking, you got to keep that well producing or you lose it. You know, there's certain clauses in the leases that if you go so long without production, then it reverts back to the mineral owner and or landowner, and you lose the asset. So in a low-price environment, I feel like uh, – You know, maybe our distributions that we uh, pay out might contract a little bit. Uh But as prices go up and more rigs go to work, then, of course, it gets more competitive. And so you can raise your prices a little bit and still capture some of that upside. Uh, But we think it's just a great way to have exposure you know to the energy
1: cycle without taking the risk sure. associated with that after having the drill wells. Yeah, it's really it's really unique because it's funny when you think oil everyone always thinks drilling probably a bunch of leverage, a bunch of risk, etc., you know, kind of boom or bust. Hmm. So it's a different way to sort of play the cycle, which is obviously great. What did I'm curious, what did Kano do with the water back in the day? Well, that's what made me think about this. Yeah.
2: Even though we were a $650 million company, which is reasonably small for this industry. It would be a small cap. We we were pretty well vertically integrated. So we had our own drilling rig. We'd have our own completion uh, rigs, and we had a lot of our own water hauling trucks. And we'd sit down quarterly and would look at the water and what we'd spend on it. And I'd think to myself, why aren't we drilling wells? Why aren't we just in the water business? Yeah, You know? Uh-huh, sure. And I never forgot that. And then I spoke to a matter of fact, a couple of other gentlemen, twenty years older than me, have uh, kicked it around with them, and and they said we've we've thought the same thing. And I said, well, well that's what I'm doing. Is next it because
1: it's not sexy, per se? Is it more that the numbers are different?
2: Yeah, well, you you get a fixed rate.
1: I yeah. mean, you know, on a disposal well, you've
2: got a margin of about a forty percent margin, give or take. Wow, that's on a, crazy. On a, on, a, on a pipeline, you're going to run. 75 to 80 percent margin uh uh-huh. uh maybe higher uh so the key is is capturing market share getting them uh getting the water committed to you by contract and then it's it's just predictable i like boring and predictable i mean it's that's good and then as prices rise and things get frothy we believe we, we've got about three years maybe two three four years somewhere in there mm-hmm. before uh wall street gets frothy and people are paying attention to water uh you know there there's some
1: big money going in private equity and I can see how private equity like it because of the predictability of it. I guess there's that margin of safety there. Absolutely, your 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 risk is going
2: out and grabbing market share, and then after that, once a well comes on and produces, you've you pretty well de risk that because they're going to keep producing. Mm-hmm. And then the biggest risk in this is your your drilling. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if drilling shuts down, then that that's going to affect how much your growth can be. And then if that happens, you need to be able to tap the brakes
1: a little bit and and stay in there and be ready for the next opportunity. Mm-hmm. So when you started Epis, did you know that you were gonna go into water then? Was that the the, the plan? No. Because I guess what is oh, up Oh, with Epis, yeah, yes, Episcopal. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: Absolutely. So we bought a little bit of oil production, but prices ran pretty quick this time. Mm-hmm. I mean they were they went from thirty to fifty to sixty in just a few months. Yeah. And I don't I'm not going to pick the top, I promise you, and I'm not going to pick the bottom. Yeah, but if you can get that bandwidth where you're near the bottom, and and then develop your model while the the overall markets are improving, then sell as you uh, go towards the top of the market. That's the plan. But yeah, Epi's that was the plan. Water, and we didn't know where we could get an entry. Our first choice was the stack scoop in Oklahoma, but we we considered you know Eagleford, uh, Barnett, Bakken. But we found a, a little company, which I like. So it, it wasn't startup. It was early stage. They'd been in business about a year. Used mom and dad's money, their own money. Started it with a single truck uh, in December of 16. And I got a phone call about September, a little over a year ago. Uh, a guy that I'd done business with, he said, Jeff, I think I found a, a fit for you. I said, okay, let's, let's get on the phone and chat. Got on the phone with Austin, chatted. I said, I get it. I, you know, another mentor told me, if you can't explain it in about 30 seconds, or if you can't explain it with a crayon and a napkin, it may be too complicated. Yeah. So I get it. I said, if you're grown it from one truck to five trucks, you're out of money. So either you got to sell the company or you want to grow it. He said, that's right. I said, well, what do you want to do? He said, we want to grow it. I said, well, who else are you talking to? He said, well, we've talked to a couple of East Coast firms, private equity. They don't understand the business. We're not comfortable with them. We'd prefer to have someone come in that knows a little bit about the business that can bring a little more than just money. Sure. You can bring your Rolodex. You know, you can bring the experiences out there. And that's exactly who we were looking for somebody that we could share our experiences with, uh, leverage upon what they got, and provide them capital. So we did that, I guess, about a year ago. We, we started, and now we've grown it to 18 trucks. We're trucking wow. for some. Uh, really solid companies we've just got a water disposal well down uh we've got we need to drill another we're trying
1: one we'd like to get 10 is m. that the salt water disposal the well salt water disposal well so can you explain that process because i think that's pretty interesting where sure. where you're actually hauling the water too yeah so let's say a, a driller calls you up or operator they say we've got a well we just drilled
2: and fracked and that means that they use anywhere from half a million barrels to a few million barrels depending on where you are and once you drill the well, in a frack job, all that is, that's short for fracture. Mm-hmm. You just put a lot of pressure underground, and you do that with water and chemicals. You pressure it up so it'll go out into the rock. Because the well doesn't sit down there like in a swimming pool. Okay. It's tight and in a rock. Mm-hmm. You fracture the rock. Water goes out. Then behind it comes sand. So sand will come behind it to prop open that rock. So the water will flow back out. That rock stays propped open. And as this water flows back out and comes back to the surface, you better have your trucks there to start hauling it off. Yeah, sure. You better have your track shoes on. So that's what we call flowback water. Mm-hmm. Then, after a few weeks, when you get through getting all the flowback water back and the well just is producing, like I said, for every barrel of oil, it produces a few barrels of water because that, that rock naturally has water in it and it will come back and is a byproduct of the oil and, by definition, is a water well. So then you'll uh, continue to truck water on a daily basis, and then the next phase is is preferably then laying a pipeline to it. So it's a process where you get in early whenever they're drilling and fracking, uh, do a good job on the water. You'll keep the well uh, for
1: about as long as they have it. Mm-hmm. Wow, that's, that's pretty awesome. I'm pretty curious to hear about, um, for EPIS, it seems like you purposely – didn't want to go the public vehicle route this time. I mean, with, with your background, mm-hmm. it probably would have been pretty easy to go out and raise whatever you wanted if you wanted to pull out the Rolodex. And from what I understand, you and I do know, you are going more to individuals Correct. this time with, with Epis. What was the decision like there and why? The, well, the decision was lucky.
2: It was the JOBS Act of 2014. Whenever they passed that, there's a Section of 506C exemption to where I can advertise and do things like this and go out to accredited investors. And that wasn't available uh, before. So effectively, simply said, we're trying to bridge the gap between Wall Street and Main Street. It is expensive to be public. You pay a lot of fees out to bankers, uh, brokers, and just to be compliant with being a public company and cost you a few million bucks a year, So we thought if we could remove the middlemen, let's go directly to the investor or the registered investment advisor, manage money, whatever you wanna call it, then we think we can be successful. We can pay them more, and upon exit, we can get more. So it's a win-win, and and I didn't see anything out there. Before we jumped into it, obviously, I wanted to know who my competition was. Who am I competing with? How are we gonna raise capital? So you had three choices, the public markets, uh, private equity, or go directly to the investor. We we knew it would take a little longer to raise the capital, mm-hmm. but it gives us a lot more freedom, and we can pay out a lot more to the investor, and we can spend more time working in the oil field than we are
1: flying around the country to tell analysts why
2: we're doing what we're doing. Yeah,
1: sure. Completely different. So then in in that fund, you have some production, and then you have the water hauling company. Mm-hmm. In, in our first fund, that's correct. Um, we bought a little bit of oil production, and, and that's doing Okay.
2: Uh, we've got the uh, eighteen trucks hauling water. We're getting paid on that. We got a, a water disposal well that's fully operational. Uh, just closed on that about, I think, the first of November, and it's doing well. And we're actually uh, upgrading it, improving mm-hmm. it. And we've got about fourteen permits out. You got a. It's a part of a disposal process. the The good news and the bad news is it's highly regulated, so rules are in place. You're in an area they know about it. It's not a whole. Lot unlike building a building, you have building codes you got to abide by. It's the same thing whenever you file your permit. So you go through that process. It's not, it's not, uh, it's simple, but it ain't easy. And so we're in the process of doing that. We've got, I think, 14 filed, four or five additional approved, uh, picking up more market share. So it's really a good time. And we want to get as aggressive as we can in 2019, uh, putting more disposal wells online. Uh, we feel like we've got the customer base to fulfill all the uh, water commitments we need and then and then look and see what happens in 2020 2021 mm-hmm. you know there there's some dynamics out there that that could get uh oil prices moving north then and if they don't we'll just keep collecting our money and making distributions.
1: yeah and and, and that's the crazy part because again when when people think oil they think risk. I think a lot of people associate, you know, like debt and leverage. And you don't even have leverage in this. That, that, that's the second thing we wanted to do. Yeah. Had we gone to a private equity or
2: Wall Street, they're going to tell you they want debt. As a matter of fact, if you uh, – I don't have the list in front of me, but I follow a couple of good analysts. Uh-huh. And they follow a handful of everything from Michael cap to your big cap. So $250 million to $50 billion. Yeah. hmm and there's about 77 companies that most of these guys follow. The, even today, at these prices, and it's remained that way even when we were up at 75. You know, today we're around 52 I think, uh, dollars a barrel. 80% of those companies, I think 15 out of the 77, so whatever number that is, as of two weeks ago, had negative working capital and were outspending cash flow by 140%. It's crazy. What business can survive <laughs> with say. negative working capital, outspending by a hundred and forty percent, and having most of them are leveraged at least at least fifty percent?
1: Yeah, sure.
2: So although they might be making positive earnings, every one of these loans are interest only. Yeah, scary. Every one of them are interest only. So I didn't want to be because that it can be intoxicating four percent money. Sure, five percent money. Well, interest rates go up. Oil prices go down. Things happen. And so this time, uh, that's the other thing. No, no debt. No bank debt. As a matter of fact, in our covenants, in our, our current uh, fund that we have, Fund H2O, we're forbidden from borrowing any money unless we borrow it to pay back the investor. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. So then so there's no debt, no leverage, and then you're paying the investor monthly distributions? Correct. We pay a 10% distribution rate, annualized. Uh, we pay it out the first week of every month.
2: And we do that up until we have an exit. And upon exit, then they get paid first again. And and on the distribution, they get paid first. So they, the investors get their distribution before we do. Uh, on exit, they get back 110% of their original capital contribution. So on a million dollars, they make 100000 a year. At exit, they get a $1.1 $1. 1 lump mm-hmm. sum before we get anything. And I'm, com- I'm comfortable. And the reason we do that, I'm comfortable with the risk. And I don't necessarily believe that people not in this industry should take as much risk as I do. Um, But if if they can live with a 10% distribution rate and first out upon exit, then I'm very comfortable taking the risk on what we can create because if we do that I'm gonna I'm gonna do very well sure
1: and, and great for the investors as well so boom and bus cycles they tend to take out a lot of smaller companies mm-hmm. I would say what do you think causes that is it because of the leverage and the outspending working capital that you referenced before absolutely so is it really just a sort of a race just to kind of grow it as quickly as you can at all costs and kind of try to get an exit you think or well it, it, you're exactly right I mean, by
2: definition, an oil well is in self-liquidation mode from day one. Mm-hmm. There's a finite amount of oil, and it starts producing at a high rate and declines over time. I mean, it declines about as fast as depreciation on a car. If you take a look at these big horizontal wells being drilled, um, I would say on average, you're going to see about a 75% decline rate your first year, and then a 40%. Wow. And probably 30 to 25% and and so forth. So it is a uh, depreciating asset mm-hmm. so you better it better what we call payout it better pay back the investment quick or you're you're going to be on a treadmill yeah. and most most companies are on treadmills Crazy. and if you're not adding reserves if you're a public company your stock's going to go down every quarter these analysts that you were talking about want to say have you added reserves have you added production remember i I was asked that maybe i didn't handle the question too well <laughs> But guy asked me on one of the calls,
1: on an earnings, on an earnings call. Yeah. Yeah. So,
2: what's your production going to be next quarter? I said, "Man, I don't know exactly what it is today. How in the world <laughs> am I going to know what it's going to be next quarter?" Yeah, you know? sure. And that, that I learned from that. Yeah. You don't say that, but but it's true. And you're just people, being honest, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and they say, "Well, is honesty bad for business?" Sometimes uh, I don't think so. It's good. There's there's a lot of ways to. To be honest, now I probably should have chose better words. Yeah, sure. You know, and said the same thing. You know, and people ask us that now. And I finally got to the point I said, you know, I don't even know exactly what time I'm gonna eat dinner or what I'm gonna eat tonight. Yeah. And I know I'm gonna eat. Yeah, sure. I don't I think I I think I have a I have a thought process on where oil prices are gonna go. I have a thought process on which companies are gonna be in trouble. We've got a thought process on Who our exit is and that kind of leads into another topic that where i think we're a little different um, than some not than all but when anybody buys an asset they spend a lot of time a lot of due diligence a lot of scrubbing uh, trying to figure out how to finance it making sure they understand the asset but generally speaking when people sell it's i call it the four d's you know because someone dies death. Debt, the banks call, death, divorce, or disease. I guess the disease and death are the same thing, but if someone gets sick. And we look at I look at it a little different, and this is another lesson learned from a couple of mentors. Yeah. I said, Jeff, always be ready to sell. Always be ready. So as we go through this, um, we also, you know, with our Rolodex, mm-hmm. know people, there's going to be companies that in six, twelve 12 months, are going to be in trouble i mean you can you can see line of sight usually within six months they're going to bust debt covenants they're going to miss production numbers and if they do things like that boards don't get bonuses ceos don't get bonuses cfos don't get bonuses so as we grow this when we get to some critical mass we'll we'll let people know Mm -hmm. you know we're we're for sale we're not going to be cheap but it's going to be easy, you know, and it's and it's not going to be. You still got to be within market. I mean, you're not. But but we can go top the market and put the word out and let them know where to go. So be strategic on the sell side too, not just on the buy side. Don't don't just sell because prices run up, or don't just sell, or feel like you have to sell uh, because somebody gets sick or dies or you know taxes. Sure, you know, even that. So we believe we're going to be strategic, and by not having any debt. It allows us to do that. Because You're, you could just sit there and collect, keep clipping, right? That's right. Yeah. And when you go to sell, that's something else a seller looks at. Well, what's their motivation? If they got debt, is the bank breathing down the neck? <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, and and so it's uh having options is important and it's just amazing by not carrying any debt and it is so contrarian to people in REITs in real estate. Even my partner. What do you mean we're not gonna get any debt? We don't need debt. <laughs> yeah. I said trust me. In your business, you got to have it to make money. In this business, you do not want it. And then it's real contrarian to people. But we can still make the same returns as real estate, You know, 10% distribution. You know, that's, I think that's better than most REITs mm-hmm. uh,
1: without, without having that risk of losing the asset. Yeah, it's, in, it's incredible. So, you, I mean, it's a lot more safe for the investors as well. And it's probably better for oh. you running the company. You're able to make totally different.
2: If you have, whenever you have debt, you, you pretty much have to have a full time person on board just keeping up with your numbers because you can it's not about just missing payments it's about tripping up on all these covenants they have you know based upon your your current ratio based upon EBITDA that they have a bunch of different ratios and if you don't see that coming and it happens and you haven't notified your bank or your bondholders yeah that's a that's a big, tough day yeah big issue that's a big tough conversation you're having that they're about to ch- take their hunk of flesh.
1: So I just recently reread, I think it was the title of smartest people in the room. It was about the Enron story mm-hmm. and it's a great book and it is so interesting to me because it's almost like stock prices to some people or I guess specifically to them, it was almost intoxicating for them. They had mm-hmm. their, their ticker price everywhere in the elevator on everybody's screen. The company just cared so much about the stock price obviously yeah. so what was that like sort of i guess being able to pull out and see what your current market can, or what the market thinks cano is is worth every single day when we started out when i first got there because it was cool
2: you know you pull up the computer yeah. back then it was yahoo finance was the big thing yeah 405 and you look at your stock price and and you have it on your screen and once again sam one of my mentors said jeff man you you, you need to get away from just and so then I went too far to the other side. I, I wouldn't look at it yeah. every day. I mean, you know, at closing, you need to know. Yeah. And I get a phone call, you know, uh, about 10 after 4 Eastern time, you know, from a couple of our big holders. say, what happened to stock today? And the last thing you, they want to hear is, well, I hadn't even looked at it yet. <laughs> so I got to pull it up real quick, take a look. and say, I don't know if nothing's going on here, but there's a balance like everything. Yeah. But as a public company, especially with Enron, that's how they were raising their money. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not unlike Tesla now. Yeah, I mean they got to what they got to maintain three hundred and sixty bucks or write a nine hundred million dollar check. I yeah. think before too long, so you have a lot of covenant ratios and stock price. You know, you got to keep them at a certain level, and and those are two not necessarily the same thing. Running a company and running a stock price don't necessarily go hand in hand. Sure. Sometimes uh-huh. now you would think that they do. The better the company, the better the stock price, but. You know, you can look at companies like Tesla out there, who's not making any money. Who knows if or when they ever will? And they're yowling three hundred sixty bucks a share. Yeah, Yeah. and then you can look at other companies that you know. There's a a great small oil company out there, Ring Energy. They're I think they're around three or four hundred, no, probably five hundred million market cap now. Great management team, no debt, up and to the right with production. Yet, market doesn't care. They've gone from thirteen to seven. Yeah, yeah, and they got plenty of cash.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, it's kind of and. you know, and I was, uh, I think Jeff Bezos said, the founder of Amazon, he said that what he's doing right now as a CEO, is he's already, he's having to perform today for like next year's earnings or two years ahead, you know, because a stock price, I mean, what is it? It's the future cash flow, mm-hmm. you know, so you're having to just sort of uh, think about that. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. So I'm going to actually. I have a couple words I'm going to throw out at you. I heard this on the radio the other day, okay. and I thought it was pretty interesting. So I'm going to throw out some words at you and just get like your quick initial thoughts that comes to mind. Okay. Okay. So Chesapeake Energy, debt. Yeah, debt. Um,
2: and the the and Aubrey and and you Ta- knew Aubrey, right? I did, indeed. Um, when he passed in sixteen, that 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 was tough. Aubrey was a, a visionary. He went. You know, regardless of what you thought of the guy, he was smart. I heard he was intense. He's intense. Yeah, Uh, but he wouldn't take no for an answer, and and he'd go and you got to have that to be an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. You know, you've got to go out and do things the way you think they need to be done. Surround yourself with smart people. But Tom, Tom and Aubrey were a a good team. Uh, But debt, they're they're doing the 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 current CEO is doing a good job trying to get out of it. Debt. Yeah. And gas. I mean, you know, my gosh, they were one time they still to be the nat- I think the largest natural gas producer in the United States. So, wow. natural gas and debt. Natural gas and debt. Next, offshore drilling. Expensive, risky, long time frame. Yeah. So, from the time you come up with an idea and you want to bring on something offshore, it's seven to ten years, you got to have deep pockets. I went non-op. That means I bought a piece. I thought I wanted to get in the offshore business. You know, it's sexy. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Did it once. <laughs> and our our piece of that well was supposed to be $850,000. And before we even got through drilling, it was up to $2 million. And we just had a, a couple of percent. I mean, very small percentages. Mm-hmm. So it's for the big boys. It's for the big boys. Fracking. Uh, revolutionized this industry. Now people don't realize fracking's been around probably since the '30s, mm-hmm. but the technology with fracking and how much better we've got at it, and how much quicker they can recover reserves. Um, matter of fact, that's that's what saved probably saved us from being at 150 or 200 dollar oil prices now. Yeah, if we and they, there's a lot of guys that figured it out. You know, um, a lot of smart guys, and yeah.
1: We wouldn't we wouldn't be having the production we're having now without really? that,
2: and prices would be a lot higher.
1: Crazy, yeah. And the recent prices, so we went from I have it written down here a high of seventy six dollars a barrel to a low of forty nine ish dollars a barrel, and now we're at around fifty two. What's what's been going on lately in the oil well, you, market? You're just saying in the last few months, yeah. Uh-huh. Less. I think it's two things. I think
2: the fundamentals are there for us to get back, you know, north of a, a hundred. If you take a look at OPEC in general and each nation is different, but they need about eighty five dollar oil for their budgets to work. And I just told you what the seventy-seven of the top public companies are doing yeah, with these prices. Sure. Uh, however, I think there are a couple of others. I think people are concerned a little bit about interest rates, which can affect the worldwide economy, which can, you know, affect demand. I think that's the biggest thing. The second thing, as much as I like Trump's policies, He's not doing us any favors going out yeah. there, you know, trying to, you know. That was going to be my next one out. of what you think. Yeah. I was
1: going to throw out Donald Trump. <laughs> yeah,
2: I, I like the policies. Yeah, I like what he's doing. I was, I was speaking with a good friend of mine who's a pretty good-sized rancher and farmer out in West Texas. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about it, and this was when right after some of the tariff threats and, and that affected his business. I said, what do you think about it? He said, "You know, Jeff. He said it's going to hurt us a little bit short term, but it needs to happen." And I feel the same way about the oil because he, you know, you can't you can't control the oil price. Mm-hmm. I mean, the market's it's the most liquid market in the world, you can buy it, and that's another reason I like it. Is if you have oil today, you can sell it in the market in five minutes. You may not know what price you are going to get, or sure. you don't have to sell it. So it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. So I think it's really more of a macro because if you take a look at what we're producing worldwide what the worldwide demand is, and just basic. I mean, we grew when we were having from about 2009 to 2016. What did we average? One and a half two 2% worldwide growth, GDP. I mean, it was low. Mm-hmm. That was the new norm, right? Yeah. Even during that time frame, we were growing at about a million to a million and a half barrels a day of demand every year. And here's what's interesting. So we're at about – give or take, I haven't looked at it this month, let's call it 100 million barrels a day of demand mm-hmm. worldwide. And if you increase, let's just say 2%, 2 million barrels a day every year. Well, five years from now, that's 10 million barrels a day. Well, your baseline for that 100 million is declining. And I, I don't think you'll find too many experts disagree that worldwide demand is declining, probably on average about 5% a year. So that's 5 million barrels a year. Let's call it 3 million barrels a year. So you take 3 million barrels a year that's going down. You take demand that's going up 2 million barrels a year. That's 5 million barrels a day of new production you have to bring on mm-hmm. to stay flat effectively. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. Is that mm-hmm. too confusing? There are three countries in the world that produce 5 million barrels a day. Russia, Saudi Arabia, and the United States of America. ExxonMobil. On their liquids production oil forget about their gas they're barely over two Jeez. so just to stay flat you, you got to bring on two or three exxon moles every year <laughs> and so it's and so that's the other dynamic of it so if, if production went negative i mean if demand went negative if just the economy went to crap and it went negative then you don't have to grow it as much but the thing that i always look at is in a pretty slow growth economy over five or six years at one and a half two percent growth demand still grew at about one and a half percent a year so i believe with uh the economy and the upside is if we can get to three or four we're, we're there now in the united states but if this worldwide economy can get to about a three percent you you could see oil prices run quick because it doesn't take long to chew up through whatever excess we got.
1: To back over hundred dollars a barrel? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Well that'll be good for for uh for guys like you for sure. Yeah. Well and I'll tell you, it's and if you don't
2: believe me, just go take a look at what OPEC countries need just to be able to pay their bills. Sure. Yeah. And look at what they're producing and it's pretty simple math. Multiply it times the oil price and
1: you get your number. And from me looking from the outside though, with your fund, you don't really I mean you're just still clipping you don't have any debt or any leverage so you're not on that roller coaster ride we're not that a lot of people in the oil industry are
2: exactly right yeah and as a matter of fact we have a customer uh up in the stack scoop we had a meeting yesterday talking about him so we have to follow these guys mm-hmm. um, very successful from an operation standpoint but their balance sheet is a mess and get, they got a lot of debt um slowing paying us a little slower so you got to stay on top of that yeah now, the flip side to that is even it, there's going to be bankruptcies it's because there's, there's going to be some more bankruptcies coming within the next couple of years when all this debt comes due unless oil prices bail them out, mm-hmm. which they could. But if we're staying around 50, there's, there's, there's going to be or there's going to be a lot of merger activity, probably. Sure. The strong buying the weak. But let's assume I'm wrong. I've been wrong a few times in my life. So let's just say I'm wrong and <laughs> prices go back to 30 and stay there. And some of these companies file BK. What's the worst thing that can happen? That's what I think about. I believe that all the uh, assets that we have that that, that are generating income, the, the water disposal wells, they'll they'll be okay. Now distributions might compress a little bit because mm-hmm. we may have to drop drop our prices just a little bit if prices get down that low. And but we own the asset. You completely own the asset. The next thing you got to look at: well, what happens if one of your customers files bankruptcy? Well, the trustee still has to pay the electricity bill and the water bill, just like a real estate building. You know, if it goes into bankruptcy, you still got to keep the rent coming in,
1: and you got to keep paying the water and electric bill. So they have to keep pumping water and, and, and disposing of it.
2: As they still got to keep producing the wells. Yeah,
1: yeah. Wow, that's that is incredible. Well, Jeff, I want to sort of bring this here to an end. And one of my favorite questions that I ask every individual that comes on. Is how can they improve as an investor? So I'm going to propose a little bit different to you. How do you think everyone listening can improve as an entrepreneur, or just some qualities that they should, you know, you think from all of your experience working that they could sort of add to their toolkit, if you will? To me,
2: more than anything, you got to work hard. Number one, you got to be willing to work hard. As Boone Pickens told my son, we were visiting with him and he asked him for advice and he said, if you want to get rich, you got to work your ass off, <laughs> and that's pretty. Yeah. Well, excuse my French, but that's pretty blatantly said. Yeah, um, I believe being a mile wide and an inch deep is is tough. Um, some of the most successful people I know is just the opposite. They they get into something they think they understand and they like, and they learn everything they can about it, and you study it, and you stay on top of it. And the third and fourth thing is something we've already hit on that may be just as important as as any of it. Find smart people, hardworking people, ethical, moral people. Surround yourself with them. And surround yourself with people with what you aspire to be. Find a mentor. You know, at 53, I still still call guys 20 to 40 years my senior. Talk to them. And then, of course, um, if you have a family, love your family. Love your family and spend time with them and then, of course you know my faith is a very big part of it but those are the things surround yourself with the right people i mean that's what your parents always told you yeah you know, you, you you will become a product of your environment yeah I completely and it's going to happen a that. lot it's going to yeah. happen a lot quicker if you're in a bad environment than it is in a good environment but you stay in a good environment long enough
1: you'll become part of that and improve that is that is great and i think a lot of people are going to definitely take a lot away from this so jeff thank you so much for coming on i, I can't Appreciate it enough. And if people want to get in contact with you, learn a little bit more about EPIS, how can they do that?
2: Yeah, so they can give me a call here at the office or, well, go to the website, uh, episenergy.com. Uh, they can call us here at the office at 618 316 8777 or shoot me an email. And it's Jeff, J E F F. Yeah, you got it. <laughs> at episenergy.com. And of course, they can if they're in Fort Worth, want to come see us. We we overlook uh, the square, the down, beautiful down Worth, Sundance Square, the beautiful Sundance Square. It looking is. at a
1: big a big Christmas tree.
2: That's right. I like it. And we're at 500 Main Street up in uh, Suite 820. But no, we'd love to talk to people. Uh, you know, we uh love the business. Yeah, and I like interacting with people. Mm-hmm. But people come in; they have my cell
1: number. We chat. Uh,
2: so that that's it.
1: That's awesome. Well, Jeff, thank you so much for coming on, and we're uh, will we'll we'll have to bring you back on when oil prices are you know going crazy or whatever. But I really can't thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thank you for having me, Andrew. I really appreciate it. Thank you, and thank you very much to everybody for tuning in with us here today at the Focus Compounding Podcast. I'm going to put Jeff's email and all of his information in the website in the show notes, so be sure to check that out if that's something that you are interested in learning a little bit more about. Um, Just a few housekeeping items. If you have gone over to our website, we have added a few different things. There is now a free Part of the website where we are going to upload content. And to be able to get access to that, you just have to put in your email, I believe, and um, from there on out, you will have access to a lot of free. Content on the website. Also, if you do go onto that list, you will also be added to Jeff's Gannon, Jeff Gannon's uh, monthly, or excuse me, weekly memo list that he will send out on investing principal to your email every Sunday. Other than that, thank you everybody so much for tuning in. If you do like the podcast and you want to help us out, feel free to give us a rating and review. That helps spread the word for Jeff and myself. And you could also follow us on Twitter at, at Focused Compound. Other than that, thank you so much to everybody for listening. Have a great day.
0: Hey, this is Jeff Gannon, and that was the Focus Compounding Podcast, the podcast where Andrew and I talk general investing concepts. If you want to know more about specific stocks I like, go to focuscompounding.com, where you can read stock ideas written up by me and other members. Membership costs $60 a month, but if you use the promo code PODCAST, it'll be $50 a month for you. Andrew and I also manage accounts for investors. To learn more about our managed accounts, email Andrew at info at focuscompounding.com. Or text or call Andrew at 469-207-5844. That's 469-207-5844. Thanks for listening.